0: Glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, greetings and salutations to everyone on this glorious Lord's Day. Hope you had an opportunity to go and worship the Lord today. Get out to your local family of faith. If not, then you need to find a family of faith and get involved. If you're, a, if you're not a Christian, then you need to come to faith in Christ. It is your only hope. If you are in the eclectic Wetumpka, Tallassee area, and you don't have a church home, and you're looking for one? Well, come join us over at Friendship Baptist Church uh, in Tallahassee, Alabama, where we would love to have you become part of what God's doing there. It's Been a cold one today. Had a monsoon yesterday. Well, say a monsoon, a lot of rain. Uh, kind of warm day, almost like spring was coming in. Uh, now it's back down in the in the in the 40s tonight. So we're from one extreme to another. But that is the weather in uh, the great state of. Alabama. It's been a minute since we've been on on here, and uh, we will try to get back at it on a regular basis every Sunday evening, as the Lord allows. And so we're going to start tonight on uh, First Peter, and then we'll follow into Second Peter after we get done with uh, First Peter. And as always, uh, we'll be putting these. uh, putting these on our podcast, the RK Ministries podcast, and we'll be uh, uh, obviously going to YouTube uh, as well and Facebook. So go find us on YouTube, like subscribe and share and go find us on the RK Ministries podcast. You can find that wherever you find podcasts to like, subscribe and share there as well. So we can continue to increase uh, the audience and still got a couple of weeks on our class At College Fire Department, we're doing a fire instructor one class uh, that I am leading, and so we'll we'll finish that up on Tuesday, the eighth of February, I believe, and then maybe uh, after that I'll be able to to come back on uh, on Thursdays when time allows to do a theology Thursday. And right now my idea is, my thoughts are to begin uh, in a systematic theology, in other words. Uh, go systematically talking about theological topics, and uh, the main topics usually are um, theology proper, the the study of God, who he is, um, and then anthropology, the study of man from a biblical perspective, and uh, harmatiology the study of sin, angelology, the study of of angels, uh, ecclesiology, what the church is, and and how it ought to function biblically, um, and I can't get them all off the top of my head right now. Eschatology, obviously, is one. End times, what, uh, what, uh, what to expect uh, as God plans God's plan comes to fruition. Uh, soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation, uh, and so we'll, we'll talk about all those things as we work our way through um, the systematic theology. So I, I don't know. A debate over which way to start that discussion. You know, one, you know, obviously, the obvious answer is to start with God, theology proper. But a lot of times, I think that it's important for us to start with uh, bibliology. I don't think I mentioned that a while ago. The, the study of God's word, in the sense of how how we come about having the scripture, the canon of scripture that we have, and and the uh, and how. How it is our authority for life and faith, because for the most part, everything we know about who God is, we learn from Scripture. So we need to have a firm understanding of that authority uh, of Scripture, in in order to have, I think, a firm understanding of biblical theology, which from which systematic theology is ultimately derived. So I'll, I'll work that out of my mind. Which way we want to go, uh, as we start uh, this this I, this discussion in theology. And again, I'd encourage you, if you have questions, please send them to me. Uh, send them to me in the comments. Uh, send them to me in a, a message. Uh, if you know my number or email, if you go to go to Friendship Baptist Church, you can find my email. Find go to the website and just email me a question. And we'll, we'll do our best to answer those questions as we go through all of these studies, whether it's here in First, first and Second Peter or where it's going to be in, in the discussion on theology. Or if there are just other questions that you would like to have an answer to or you've been pondering or, or something like that, just feel free to send those to us and we'd love to try to answer those questions from a biblical perspective for you. And so, uh, with all that said, let's get into this letter to First Peter. When we thought about, when I thought about this, uh, thinking about starting this letter to First uh, that Peter wrote, this first epistle of Peter, uh, I thought, well, first we need to understand a little bit about Peter. And most of us, if you're Christians, you know Peter. You you read about him in the Gospels quite extensively, and we know that. Peter was a fisherman, right? He was just a hard-working, uh, blue-collar, calloused hand, uh, rough around the edges, regular old guy who just worked hard uh, all, every day of his life to try to make ends meet. That, that was Peter. He was not, nothing prestigious about him uh, sociologically. Uh, he, he was just a, a roughneck uh, that tried to make a living catching fish. And so he was just a common everyday guy. And that, that ought to give us encouragement as uh, believers, uh, because if God can use Peter the way he used Peter, then there's not a one of us that he can't use uh, in this world, in his kingdom. Uh, and so most of us can relate to a guy, uh, a guy like Peter. And so I thought that that's an interesting thing we needed to think about, about uh, the person Peter. Peter and it ought to give us encouragement. And Peter's a prominent figure. You know, it was Simon. That's where we first meet him in the Gospels as Simon, uh, Alexander's brother. Uh, and then uh, when Jesus meets Peter, uh, as each disciple is called or apostle is called, uh, they generally go and find someone else to tell them about Jesus. And what, what a message that is, right? What a sermon that is that we, we ought to be people. When we come to faith in Christ, we go find other people and say, Hey, we found the Messiah come and see. Uh, and so, uh, Peter comes to Christ and when the Lord meets Peter, he changes his name from Simon, a uh, thing in Aramaic, it may be, uh, kephos uh it means rock it's i may have butchered that uh, aramaic word but it means rock and we know in the greek it was translated to Peter Petros, which means rock. And we know on that confession that Peter made when the Lord asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, Jesus told him, you're right. You didn't get that from flesh and blood that the father gave that to you. And it's on this rock. I will build my church. And, you know, there's this historic discussion that goes on between the, the Protestant and the Catholic church on what that means um you know catholics the the rock is peter uh he's the first pope and every pope thereafter comes from that lineage in 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 a spiritual sense from from peter Uh, whereas for those of us who are protestants Generally, maybe not all, but generally understand that to mean that the confession that Peter made is the rock is the foundation. And we learn later on that it is Christ who is the ultimate cornerstone, the chief cornerstone of this of this body that is being built up. And all of us, as we'll learn in in let Peter's epistles, that we are all little Petras uh, little rocks who are being uh, built up into this family, this kingdom of God built on this chief cornerstone. So I think even Peter in his epistle kind of gives us an idea of how he uh, understands this concept of this, of this foundational rock upon which the church will be built. It is Jesus Christ, and not Peter himself. But here's what uh, David Guzik says in his uh, in his commentary or his treatment of this passage. And you can go, uh, great resource. resource um, again, I don't get paid to, paid by these people to advertise, but uh, it, it is a great resource. Just like Esword, you can go you can go get Esword, download it, and you can have this commentary or these notes from David Guzik for free um, it's, uh, enduring word commentary. You can can Google it and you can find, he's got a whole website and everything. The thing I like about him is, is he puts the cookies on the shelf where all of us can understand it. Right. And so, uh, I, I like to always peruse what he has to say about a text and see how he outlines it and structures it and that kind of things. And, thing i don't always agree with him theologically uh and there's some things in here i wouldn't agree with him theologically on that we're going to find in first peter but uh he does give a a great outline a great summation of of the the chapter in his in his commentary and it's all it's all free uh, and i like free stuff uh so he says about peter in the new testament in general jesus or jesus rebuked peter more than any other disciple Peter was the only disciple who dared to rebuke Jesus. You know when Jesus talks about going and being arrested and and being crucified. Uh, Peter confessed Jesus more boldly and uh, accurately than any other uh, disciple. Uh, and then Peter denied Jesus more forcefully and publicly than any other disciple. And Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple. And we know Peter was part of that inner circle—Peter, James, and John—that uh, in, in the the, the the rank of the disciples and and it seems as though peter you know might use the word leader but at least in this sense he was the spokesperson of the apostles he spoke for on their behalf and i think they looked to him uh from time to time but he was one you know he he made a lot of mistakes uh, put his foot in his mouth a lot of times but uh, the biggest mistake he made was hey you know denying the lord three times um, and of course the Lord restored him in it, just in his, in just in his life, we, we ought to find encouragement that if you can go to the place where Peter did, uh, after Jesus's arrest. And then when Jesus was raised from the dead, he comes to Peter and ask him those three times, do you love me? Not, not inquiring but under but making peter uh understand that he knows right and 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 reaffirming peter's role in the kingdom of god and so just a beautiful story of, of second chances and god picking us up when we fail and and allowing us to continue to be used in his kingdom and so uh peter is an interesting guy i think all of us can relate to in some way and if god can use peter he can he can use us and so uh, the second thing I thought about was, well, w- when was this letter written? Well, it, it was written probably around 62, you know, I got this from, this, this is from the ESV uh, commentary, ESV study Bible aspect of it. And, and again, there are people who debate these numbers all the time, but I think this is a more conservative number and I, I tend to follow after the more conservative numbers, When uh, it was written uh, in Rome, Peter wrote it from Rome. Uh, Now, Peter didn't write it himself. Peter was uh, more of a dictator. He he dictated it, and he had an amanuensis, or or a person who went with him, a secretary, you want to call it that, that that put this to paper for him. But uh, it was in Rome, and it was around 62 to 63 uh, A.D., during the time of Nero, and that's important because it fits with the, the 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 reason or the occasion for the writing, which we'll see in a moment. The occasion ultimately is Christians who are beginning to find, beginning to endure persecution, and it was in the reign of Nero that persecution. Uh, it was the incipient age of persecution on Christians when Domitian came along a little bit later on, and persecution became really harsh on uh, believers in in in. In that in the first century and so during nero's time it lends to this idea that there was the incipient stages of persecution and again it depends on who you read when you read revelation revelation is probably written either in nero or domitian's time, depending on who you read. But even still, it's during that time when persecution of Christianity uh, was beginning to uh, become the norm for those Christians who were living under the thumb of the Roman Empire. So this is a letter written to encourage them. So uh, who was the audience? Well, we see that in the very first verse in the audience. It Peter tells us, he writes, to those who are elect exiles of the uh, dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so these were prim- primarily Gentile areas. It's, it's, uh, it's modern day Turkey, uh, Asia Minor. It's the same general area that uh, John sent his seven letters to that same region of the world that john sent his seven letters to that the that the lord gave him in revelation so it's those gentile believers pr- predominantly gentile believers there's probably some jews smathered in there um, but predominantly gentile region gentile believers in modern day uh, turkey is where he wrote it and again it's important we'll talk about it more in a minute this idea of the, the dispersion or some translations may have scattered those who are scattered, those who are who are uh, sojourners, uh, something like that, uh, and it, it really is a tip of the hat to um, what the Lord called Israel um, in in the Old Testament at times, and so it's really the, the whole thing that that Peter's going to do. Or at least there's an underlying. Idea or at least a theme among many themes in first Peter, where Peter's going to encourage these believers, these Gentile believers by reminding them that they have become. Uh, they have become partakers in the same covenant that God has made uh, with his people throughout history, namely Israel. And he's going to use he's going to use language that was used to identify the nation of Israel. He's going to use that to identify these Gentile Christians. And we'll talk more about that as we get into uh, the text here in just a moment. Probably going to only be able to get through uh, verses one and two uh, tonight. And you'll, we'll find that this this. Uh, I will probably tend to spend more time in in this epistle or these epistles than I probably necessarily did in Ecclesiastes. I mean, just to be transparent, my, I, I I love the Old Testament and read the Old Testament, read through the Bible every year. Love to study books in the Old Testament, uh, but my my passion and 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 I guess emphasis emphasis has been primarily uh, to understand the New Testament. Not to neglect the Old Testament, but, and you can't really understand the New Testament unless you have some grasp of of the Old Testament as well, because the Old Testament, the, the the furniture is all there in the Old Testament, as Dr. Bodie Bakum says, but the New Testament turns the lights on so you can see uh, all the furniture clearly. But anyways, just, just, just by my passion. I've, I've spent uh, all of my years from the time I first took the, the first semester of Greek in, uh, in Bible college, and I've spent all of that time to now trying to to understand and learn and learn that language and and better understand that language, and I'm nowhere near, where nowhere near where I need to be uh, on that. It's it's a lifelong in, endeavor for me. But anyway, I, I, that, that just kind of seem to be where uh, where my passion lies in in that. So I, I I tend to linger a little more in the New Testament. But anyway, with that all with with that said, the occasion for this is again like we talked about suffering Christians. And they need hope. They need hope in that Christ has not, you know, abandoned them, that uh, what they're going through is, is difficult. And how can they endure? How do they deal with the state and the oppression that's coming upon them from the state from, and as we learn in revelation, eventually it comes from inside and out to this idea of trying to conform uh, to the spirit of the age. How how do they deal with the pressures that come in for us? for we who are Americans, this is a, this is a really kind of a foreign idea, right? Because for we, we you guys have, if you listen to me any length of time, you know, I say this all the time. We, we are unique among Christians in history because there are, there is no other group of Christians in the history of Christianity or in the history of God's people who have had such a freedom to express their religion and there come a time when that we you had um you know christianity was part of the state religion under the roman empire for a time but throughout the history of christianity and throughout the peoples of the world that have become christians there have been there have been very 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 few people who have had a sense of freedom as christians like we have had and probably no one like we have had as as americans and we we have we have lived in an oasis of of ease as it relates to christianity now we feel we feel some pressure from society now right and we we feel uh how things may be shifting now in our nation because of the secularism and the abandonment of our judeo-christian founding And uh, abandonment of the morality and and abandonment of of science and all the things that go along with that and and people beginning to look at Christians as part of the problem rather than part of the foundational element of what made this country uh, what it is. And so we don't understand this idea of persecution to the extent that those people who live in countries around this world, where Christians, if you become a Christian, then you can, you can lose your home. You can lose your, your livelihood, or you can use, lose your life. And there are people around this world that are persecuted to that extent every day. And from, for us, it's like, well, that's way out under over there. And we barely ever even think about it. And I think that hopefully this Pat, this, 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 letter will remind us that they're just like these Christians suffered persecution in the first century. There are Christians right now all around this world who are suffering persecution. And if we're not careful in our country, we will, we will begin to see the same. And so maybe it'll, it'll it will cause us as americans to use the freedoms that god has blessed us with to stand up against the tyrannical rule that is rising in our uh country pushing us away from christianity and our christian values and our our judeo-christian foundation and then maybe it'll cause us to think about our brothers and sisters around this world who have been suffering persecution uh like they have in the first century throughout the ages and so that's why you know and we'll get into it a little bit when it relates to eschatology uh in here but you know that's why when we think about hey there's coming an age you know what were what, the church you know people believe the church is going to be secretly raptured out of this world uh, so we can escape the real terrible time of persecution. Well, what about all those people who've been suffering that terrible time of persecution even right now? Uh, it's always a ridiculous idea to me. But uh, and and I, if you follow me through Revelation, uh, you you understand why I think that, and you understand where I'm coming from. And you can go back and find that on our podcast and and go through through our study in Revelation, and and you at least understand where I'm coming from again. Uh, I I don't think, you know, that's something that we ought to necessarily divide over whether we don't fellowship one another, hey, uh, uh, because ultimately salvation is always in Christ and Christ is going to Christ is going to, he's the beginning and the ending of our faith. And so, uh, however it ends, if I understand it correctly or not, however it ends, Christ is going to bring it to an end the way he sees fit. And as long as my faith is in him, uh, then I will be in his kingdom for all of eternity. So moving on, uh, go to, um, uh, some themes that are in there just very quickly. Um, some themes, and again, I think I pulled this from the ESV Study Bible. These these themes that are in there: uh, the church in, in is the new temple, the new Israel, the new people of God. And I know that'll cause some controversy. And again, that goes back to uh, eschatology. Eschatology is important when when we do that in systematic theology. Hopefully, you'll see how important eschatology is because eschatology. What you believe about end times ultimately shapes how you look at the rest of Scripture and how you look at the theological implications of all of Scripture. So it's very important. So when when you read a text like this, the new Israel, the new people of God, uh, there are people whose hackles will raise up, right? Because there's a distinction between uh, dispensationalism and and amillennialism and uh, postmillennialism. Uh, and, and all the other isms that go along with eschatology because there are those that have this idea that there are two peoples of God, Israel and the church, And that God deals with those two people in distinct and different ways. And I think we'll find through this epistle in Peter right off the bat here that uh, Peter doesn't understand it that way. Uh, Jesus didn't understand it that way. Paul didn't understand it that way. So I don't know why there are people in this world who uh, understand it that way, who claim to be followers of Christ and students of God's word. And so hopefully we'll flesh that out as we go through Secondly, believers should set their hope on their end-time inheritance. So see, again, eschatology. Eschatology uh ultimately points us to the hope that's going to come in Christ Jesus. That that glorification, that the, the completion of our salvation, as Paul says, what he started in me, he will uh complete in me. Uh and one day we shall be uh, you know, sanctified justified, glorified in that culmination of the kingdom of God, <coughs> excuse me, at the return of Christ. All right. Christ died as a substitute for sinners. His death is the basis for, for a new life, for the believer's new life. Uh, Christians suffer. I'm not giving the, the text, but you, we'll, we'll see these as we go through. And I, I may not point these out every as we go through this. This is just for our introductory matter. So you can kind of get an idea of what, what we're going to be seeing in this text. In this letter uh, Christ suffering is an example to his disciples uh, at his resurrection Christ triumphed over his enemies uh, Christians should live righteously in their homes and in society and again that that's that's a concept that has uh, seemed to fall off the the, the the scope of Christian life in the Western world at least um, because there is this idea of anti-lordship salvation uh, in that that permeates the Western Church, and, and there are people who have this idea that I, I, if I if I say a prayer, uh, if I you know get baptized, uh, I get my ticket punched in some way um, you know, use the decision language. If I make a decision, I get my ticket punched, get my name on a roll or whatever, then I can be saved. And then I can go live, live like the devil. And you know, I'm a, okay. I got my ticket punched. So I'm going to go off and do whatever it is I want to do. Well, there's no, there's no concept in Christian, in in the scripture that lends to that idea. There is no concept in the scripture that says a person can be a a a born again, regenerate believer and follower of Jesus Christ and it not impact the way they live their life. And I'll point that out as we go through our text today. So anyway, that's one of the things that, that it, it irks me that people would even teach that or, or proclaim that because it is so contrary to the word of God. There is this expectation of obedience to follow, uh, our, Salvation, because just think of how it's described in the Bible. It's, it's thought, Jesus says to Nicodemus, "You must be born again." That is a traumatic concept to be born spiritually, right? You understand the trauma that comes with new birth uh, in our birth in the physical. But this new birth, this born again, is a is is a is a spiritual picture of that new thing that happens in you, and that's why we, the Bible talks about we 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 have this new nature, and the Bible talks about taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, and Paul describes it as being brought from death to life. So there's this dramatic spiritual uh, awakening that takes place in us when we come to faith in Christ, and to think that that will not impact the way we think and live and act in this world, I think is a very, uh, a ludicrous way to understand the scripture. Uh, new life in Christ is the basis for life, uh, for a life of love and holiness. So it's all Christ centered, right? And then here's, here's a, a, just a short little outline. And again, I, I won't necessarily follow this outline. I'm just going to teach, um, teach it as, as, as it, it go, as I go through it and, and we'll break it wherever we need to break it. So, uh, but just so you will have, if you like to take notes or if you are interested in those kinds of things. And I, I usually do when I preach, give at least an outline of the direction we're going in the text, but first, and again, I think this is from the ESV, um, study Bible it says, uh, the first is the introduction or the opening, um, uh, prolog you want know, we'll call it that, uh, verses one through two, chapter one, and then uh, called to salvation as exiles, chapter one, three through two, 10, uh, living as strangers to bring glory to God in a hostile world. And boy, you to highlight that, right? Because that's really what God's called to every one of us. We're going to find out all of us are strangers in a hostile world. Uh, we're all pilgrims. We're all, uh, you know, sojourners in this world that we live in because we're ultimately our ultimate home is the kingdom of god and so we we're in that journey to the kingdom of god as a christian was in pilgrim's progress right to that celestial city uh enduring suffering is four twelve through five eleven, and then he gives some concluding remarks in chapter 5 12 through uh verse 14 all right so let's uh let's jump into the text i should have pulled it up and we'll just read uh read the let me let's see if i can pull it up right here we'll just read uh, we'll just read the first couple of verses um man, i got too many screens and too many windows open right this second let's see if i get my bible program up bible program up and running my e Sword that I keep advertising for everybody. I'm telling you, if you got a laptop, uh, if you got a if you got a a, a tablet, a iPad, whatever tablet, iPhone, Android, y'all uh, y'all to, to put it on your devices. It, well, I, iPhone, I think it cost you a dollar to put it on the iPhone. I don't know about the iPad. I don't think I got it on my iPad. But if you got a computer, download it on your computer, free, and it's it it and it is well beyond the cost right it's a powerful powerful uh tool to have so anyway uh, let me see if i can i uh, got lost in my explanation of esord i guess y'all see how much i like it um so let me just read the text to you for at least verses one and two and we'll try to work our way through those uh so peter begins peter an apostle of jesus christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithany, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right, now pull my notes back up. (coughs) Excuse me. So we start off Peter. We've talked about Peter, Petros, the Rock, Simon, the Fisherman. Peter was called by God to be an apostle. Paul by called by Christ to be an apostle. And we we could spend twenty minutes talking about this idea of uh, apostleship, uh, the the apostolic uh, calling, and whether or not that still goes on today in in that sense. I I am a cessationist. I I do not believe there in in the in the sense that it's being used here of Peter, Peter an apostle, Paul an apostle, right? In that sense, I think the the ministry of apostleship has ended. It ended with the twelve apostles that that uh, Christ called and which included ultimately Peter, uh, who or Paul rather. Who who was one born out of time? I think as he as he says uh, he was he was he was late to the game, getting into the apostleship. But I think that was a specific ministry and a specific role that God used for those twelve men. Now, if you think about uh, apostolos, the the Greek word that is there, it really just means sent out one. So in a so maybe a capital A apostle uh, in the sense of the twelve apostles that that ministry is over with. Uh, there are no new apostles. So these people, if they, if they, if they think of themselves in that kind of role, then I think they're thinking of themselves in an unbiblical way. But if you take it in a a little a uh, sense, right, uh, uh, a sense, maybe is that a. I can't remember my my sign language, but a, a little a sense in 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 that apostolos means sent out ones. Then all of us are sent out. All of us have been sent out by God to uh, be ministers of the kingdom, right? The great commission. Uh, Jesus says, all authority in Matthew 28, uh, 18, all authority has been given to me um, in heaven and in earth. And then in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. So in that that sense, all of us have been sent out as Christians to uh, go and evangelize the world, to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them, to observe all things that the Lord has commanded them to do. So even in the Great Commission, there's this idea of obedience, of lordship that comes into this concept of salvation. And so he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so Christ is the one who is at the center of this ministry that Peter has been called to. Christ ought to be at the center of the ministry that all of us have been called to. And then he writes to the those who are elect. And that depends on your translation. It, it, your translation may not have the word elect in it specifically. It may even read to those who are, uh, exiles of the dispersion and, and lead that out. And, and, you know, that, that, that made me, when I see, saw that in some, it made me go back and look at, uh, I think it's Nestle Island 26 that I have on, on the e-sword and The word for election, electois, is the word that is used in this sentence in the Greek. But electos, it means to be called, to be called, to be chosen, the called out ones, uh, if you will. And so I thought maybe we need to think a little bit about what it means to be elect because remember, Why is Peter using this language? Well, it's a biblical term. As we as we look back, as we look at it uh, from the other side, it is a biblical term. We see it all. We see it all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament, and so. I'm, I'm convinced that Peter is using this as a means. Remember, we talked about him encouraging those who were under persecution out in the diaspora, those sojourners, those exiles, as we'll see in a moment. So he's using language that that God, the father used that Yahweh used um, in uh, that Yahweh used. My, my mind's going 90 miles an hour when I said that sentence because there's some nuanced theology in just what I just said that can be confusing if we don't say it correctly. But anyway, uh, those who are uh, those who are the elect, God uses that language of Israel. God uses the idea of them being sojourners and exiles. Uh, to identify his chosen, elect people in the Old Testament, and so Peter's using that to tell these Gentile believers, "Hey, you are that people of God, right? You you have that same inheritance, that same covenantal relationship <coughs> with Christ." And, and and here's you know where where I probably get in trouble because like, like I tell everybody all the time, and I think over here I got I got one. I, now I, I sent this. Uh, to my daughter to have it made, and, and I, I spelled it wrong because I, I didn't put an I think it's an I in there where an A should be, but that's on me, okay. <laughs> but that's on me. But maybe you can see uh, the the letter. All right. I'm 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 Calvinish, not Calvinist, okay. Um, and uh, you know what that means is that I'm still wishy washy on a couple places, okay. <laughs> that's really what that means and because i see some things that give me pause on certain aspects of uh if you look at the outright aspect of the tulip there's certain things that give me calls but then you know those who are my calvinist friends will say well if you if you falter on one you really uh you know that they they kind of they kind of are all together you can't you can't not believe not believe one and then believe others because they kind of crumble all if you don't believe them all So they would say, hey, you're not Calvinist at all, and and that may be justified, but then there are those who are Arminians would say, hey, uh, you you are Calvinist, right? You're just like all the rest of them uh, dark side Christians. And so that's what the cup says, Calvinist, the darker side of theology. Uh, So anyway, um, but here's what's happened to me over time when I think about this issue of election because I I grew up in the independent Baptist church and my cut my teeth theologically there and praise the Lord for the the gospel theology that was preached there uh, and the idea of people needing to come to faith in Christ and uh, that it's all about Christ and and not about us and, and our uh, zeal to try to go and get the gospel out and those kinds of things. But uh, there was still inherent in that, this idea of, uh, man-centeredness in the gospel decision uh, aspect but don't think it's just there it is it, i think baptists in general in modern era because uh even with the bill of Grams of the world and southern baptists of the world uh it's salvation has become this thing and, and i think I don't know if I don't know who said this quote, okay? but it's uh, I don't know if it's I I won't say a name because I'm not sure who said it, but you've heard it before that God's done done ninety nine percent of the work. Right. And you got to do the one percent of the work. Uh, or another quote, and again, I, I, I won't say who it's attributed to. I got in my mind a couple of names, but I don't want to misquote them. But you've heard it, uh, that God has a vote, Satan has a vote, and you get the deciding vote. Well, you know, that's the idea of salvation in, in modern Christianity today. And that couldn't be further from the truth from Scripture. And the more I have read Scripture and the more I have studied Scripture, you cannot get away from this idea of election and predestination. And we'll see another word in a moment foreknowledge. And so over the years, because, hey, man, you couldn't have found a, a, a person who was more staunchly against uh, Reformed theology in the sense, I'll put it this way, in a more nuanced sense, against Calvinism than I was when I first became a a Christian. But I don't know what to say. I, uh, the more I've studied systematically, because when I first started out, and again, you guys don't care about all this, but when I first started out preaching, I taught more I preached more topically. i right? choose topics and themes and find verses and scripture that would go with those. And, and you know, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong all the time. But uh, some, something changed in me and the Lord prompted me to begin to systematically uh, study through and teach through God's word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book of the Bible. And I can't say that I've done that consistently, but the more I began to do that, the more things begin to line up theologically for me. And you can't help but see the systematic way that God has unfolded the doctrine of soteriology in his word and i get it there are people out there who are going to listen to me or who would listen to me and they would completely try to destroy everything i'm about to tell you and hey i I, that's fine that they can do that all i can all i can share with you is what i see in god's word in this passage in this text and then uh to use a extra uh, you know, we have the five solas uh, of the Reformation. To use a sixth one, uh, you know, we have we have sola scriptura. Well, we also need to have tota scriptura, uh, the totality of Scripture. Uh, I think in a in a in the in 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 a, in a academic way, uh, other than tota scriptura, another way to say it is uh, the analogy of Scripture. In other words, Scripture interprets Scripture. And so I think we need to take the totality of scripture in mind as we look at these passages, but we've got to read these passages in the historical context in which they were written to the people in which they were written and uh, understand what Peter was saying in this letter to these people and then weigh that against the rest of scripture. I get it, but I think what you're going to find if you, if you start thinking about this idea of election which scares the 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 bejeezes uh out of most uh you know provisionalist or or people in in that ilk because we we want to have our 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 free will right and our autonomy and those kinds of things especially those of us who are americans right you, know, you ain't the boss of me. You're going to tell me what to do, right? And then that I will raise yourself up by your bootstraps. Hey, I'm going to go out at this, this America. I can do what I want to do, right? So uh, we, that we, bring, we bring that sometimes into this idea of, of salvation. And I get it. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm rambling now. I need to get on back to the outline, but I'm I'm not saying there isn't an idea of creaturely freedom because I think God gives us the freedom as creatures to make decisions, but also believe in God's sovereignty. Uh, and that God is sovereignly working out his plan in this world. And if you go throughout the scripture, which we don't have time to do tonight, you'll see that God has ordained, laid out the steps of humanity. Uh, and it's no accident that, uh, um, all the people that were there at the crucifixion were there. Paul talks about that, um, through Luke, uh, as Luke records it in the book of Acts. So anyway, what about this idea of election? What does it mean? I think there are two aspects to election now. Don't, don't get me wrong. I think there is this sense of corporate election. And I think we see that in the nation of Israel. Because in the nation of Israel, the nation, well, it started with Abraham, right? Abraham was the one called out by God. Uh, and out from Abraham came ultimately the nation of Israel. Uh, we get to Jacob and all of his children. Uh, and so in that sense, there was this corporate concept of Israel. But within that corporate concept of the national aspect of Israel, there were the elect of God who were the true believers in the promise of God. Because Paul even reminds us in Romans, not everyone Romans 9, I think it was not everyone who is Israel is Israel, right? Just because they were born of Abraham didn't make them spiritual Israel or true Israel. Why? Because they didn't believe the promise of God. It's always been about believing the promise of God. So, in some sense, there that may not translate co- completely to uh, the church. In one sense, it does, because there are people who claim to be Christians who are not true Christians, right? Who sit in church pews, who are, uh, is, is, <laughs> I don't know where I get this phrase from, but I say it a lot of times, they lost as Cooter Brown, right? So who, whoever Cooter Brown is, but they're cr- people who claim to be Christians, so it's not every person who claims to be a Christian is a Christian, but there there is a, 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 an elect an elect people of God, right? That make up the body of Christ in this world. And so in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, we see this, we don't have time to trace every aspect of this down tonight and you can go do that on your own time. But Ephesians chapter one, verse four, says, even as he, meaning Jesus, chose us. Now the word for chose is the same word group that we get this word election from in first Peter he chose us so he called us out he elected us in him in Christ and when did he do it before the foundation of the world now, I don't know how do you get away from that how do you explain that away I get it right but that's what it says and all I can tell you is what the scripture says that's what the scripture says that God chose those who are his before the foundation of the world and i get it we go to the many other passages that we could go to and again we're not going to take the time to do it tonight you can raise those questions in the comments if you want to but here we have two different places one calling them god's elect and then the bible telling us in ephesians 4 as paul writes that these elect, this this elect was chosen before the foundation of the world. How do we flesh that out? Well, we'll run into another word here in just a moment that we'll have to tease out to help us understand that. But look at Mark Mark thirteen twenty. Mark thirteen twenty says, "And if the Lord had not cut short the days, now this is talking about uh, the 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 tribulation es- eschatology end times. If the Lord had not cut short those or short the days." no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect. Okay? Look at what he says. Whom he chose. Right. He's the one, again, that, that doesn't push it to the point of he chose before the foundation of the world like Ephesians 1-4 does, but it reinforces this idea that whoever these elect are are ones who have been chosen by God. And for their sake he shortened uh, the days. And so, again, Peter uses this language, I think, to relate to the nation of Israel who was God's elect chosen people. And now he's telling these group of believers who are in this dispersion, who are in the, these outer regions, if you will, who are under persecution, that you are God's elect chosen people. And he reinforces that when we get to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what Peter says there. And if it doesn't remind you of Israel and and see that Peter is using this language to say hey just like Paul says you have been you have become partakers in the blessings of this covenantal relationship that God had given to his chosen people of Israel look what he says in second first uh, Peter 2 9 and 10 but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation now why how, why would he say that of these? christians because they're not a nation they live in a nation right they're sojourning as as foreigners he says in these lands these because it's the it's the kingdom of god and what he's telling them is you have become part and parcel with the people of god in this kingdom of god which started with the those who are true israel um in in that uh, chosen group of people it right, goes on to say, "They are a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous lights." Light, light. verse ten says, and this this validates that he's talking to Gentiles. He says, "Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." And I think that is, uh, and I, I didn't look this that passage up we'll deal with that when we get to chapter two but uh, I think that's a nod back to the old testament and uh, the name slipped my mind right this minute it it was in there Uh, and you guys are probably shouting the name of the prophet who who married uh, the prostitute and uh, they had two children Oh uh, I think one's name was Loami and I forget the other's name it was something simpler similar to that but one of them meant not my people <laughs> and so every time I always think about it, every time he went to the door to call his children he would yell out not my people right <laughs> if we were if it was english not my people come on right? and so that was that was a living you know prophetic word to Israel because of their rebellion uh, against God And so he's using all of this old Test- testament language that was associated to the nation of Israel, and he's and he's hanging it on these Gentiles and to encourage them to say that you are God's chosen people. You have become part of the people who will receive the promise of God. And again, there are people who won't like that language, right? Because, again, eschatology is important because, because there are people in particular, uh, dispensationalists, who... Uh, for the most part, most dispensationalists don't understand dispensational theology. Uh, all they understand is, hey, pre-tribulation, rapture of the church, seven-year tribulation, uh, I'm not going to be here, right? So that that's mostly what people, dispensational people understand about theology, but they don't understand the dispensations in which God has worked and how he's worked throughout history and how that unfolds in dispensational theology and how that shapes your framework of how you look at scripture and God deals with his people. And part of that is that God in dispensationalism has really two groups of people. He has Israel and it's the church and he deals with the church in one one way and he deals with Israel in a, in a, in a separate kind of way. But I think, I think Paul debunks that idea for us. I think the Bible in general debunks, debunks that idea for us. Um, and I I forget where all these passages are, but you can Google it and Google it'll tell you. Um, But the Lord talks about breaking down the middle wall of separation and breaking down the hostility between Jews and Gentiles and making one new man out of the two. And so we have that kind of language throughout scripture that indicates to us that, that God has not, that God does not see, uh, his kingdom as two separate peoples, but one new people, um, in Christ Jesus that's made up of Jews and, and Gentile. And I just wanted to share a couple other verses, uh, with your passages with you from a couple other books of the Bible to reinforce this idea that there's one people of God and those people are God's elect people. They are God's chosen people. And probably one, one of them, one well, the, of the pivotal verses or passages for this, for me, is in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, Paul is dealing, again, if you back up to Romans chapter 9, Paul is illustrating this idea of God's election or his, his ultimate free choice to choose whom it is he wants to choose. Uh, you know, Esau, uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, right? Esau, Esau, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated uh, in that passage in Romans chapter nine. And it was before they were born, before they were able to do anything that was good or evil, God chose Jacob over Esau. And we see hints of that all throughout scripture, right? We see it with, with, uh, with John the Baptist in the womb. God, God chose him from the womb. So this idea, did he have a, did he have a choice? Could he do, could he have done something different? If he had done something different, then that means God's not omniscient, that he doesn't know all things, because what God knows is what's going to happen. And God called him from the womb. But anyway, uh, back to this. Paul is illustrating this point that these Gentiles have come into faith in Jesus and that the Jews have to come into faith in Jesus. And he uses this illustration of this olive tree to kind of help both sides know that there's one people of God. Uh, there's the nation of Israel, those true believing Israelites whose hearts have been circus, circumcised is not a matter of the flesh, right? It's a matter of the heart. Their hearts have been circumcised. And then there are these, those are the natural branches, he says. And then there are these wild branches that have been grafted in to this, uh, this um, olive tree, this natural olive tree whose root ultimately is God. And it says that these, both of these branches take part in the the nourishment of the root. <clears throat> so listen to Paul in Romans chapter 11, verses 12 through 15, or 17, or 13 through 17, rather. This one olive tree says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Verse 15, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead and again we don't have time to explain everything that means Uh, I did a whole we did a whole sermon series through the book of Romans you can go find that uh, on on the podcast or on Facebook live uh, and and go back and research that um, to, to understand everything you need to know about these passages but pertinent to the point we're talking about verse 16 if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So the idea is there's one olive tree. There's one root that sustains this olive tree. That root is Christ Jesus. The olive tree uh, is, is the kingdom of God, the people of God. and the branches are those people on this in this kingdom. and it is the root that sustains this olive tree and these branches become holy because of who the root is, who the vine is, if you want to use that John fifteen, I think it is. Uh, verse uh seventeen. But if some of the branches were broken off, mean unbelieving Israelites, Uh, Some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now, here's the pertinent part, now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. And he's already told us those who are part of this tree uh, take part in their nourishment of the root because the root is holy. They are holy. And the root ultimately is Jesus Christ. He is the He is the chief cornerstone. He is the, the, the author and the finisher of our faith. Salvation has always been about the promise of God and the promise of God has always been about the coming of Messiah and the coming of Messiah has always been about the person, Jesus Christ. And so uh, both Jew and Gentile must come to faith in Christ to be gr- part of this one old olive tree. And there is one people of God that make up this olive tree, both Jew and Gentile. And then in a couple of other passages, we'll be done with this and we'll, we'll move on. John chapter 37, when it goes back to this idea of election, and again, I'm trying to tie all these together and I may be making it more confusing than it needs to be. But I think when John, when Paul Peter, when Peter uses this term, he's telling us there's one elect people of God, and that elect people of God is made up of both Jew and Gentile, and the Gentile has partaken, as Paul says in Romans 11, they have partaken in uh, this holy root, uh, which is Christ Jesus. And here, here's the catcher. The only the, listen to John 6:37. We're we're going through the Gospel of John right now at Friendship Baptist Church. Uh, I was out this morning, but uh, we'll be back at it again next Sunday. Um, and I think we're getting close to chapter six. We're in chapter five right now, but we'll be in chapter six in, in a few weeks. Chapter six is lengthy, so it may take us a, a few weeks to get to this portion of it. But in John chapter six, verse 37, listen to what Jesus says. He's talking to these uh, you know, religious leaders of his day. He says, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever, comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, again, that, that's encouragement. I don't have time to teach that. I'll pick that up when we get in John chapter six, but it's it, that's, that's the perseverance of the saints right there, right? Because whoever comes to him, he's never going to cast out. Uh, so if you come to Christ, you're not going to lose your salvation. But how do you come to him? Well, the father gives you, right? So salvation is all of God and not of me, right? I don't give myself to the father. The father gives me to Christ or to Christ. The father gives me to Christ. And then look at verse 47, 44, a little bit later on in that passage, no one can come to me. So how do, how do we come to Christ? Well, the father will give us to Christ and we will come to Christ. And then Christ, whoever comes to Christ will never be cast out. Well, who is it that comes to Christ? Well, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So it's the father who draws us and the father who gives us. Uh, and in that giving, we, uh, ultimately come to Christ because the father has drawn us and the father has given us to Christ. So salvation is all of God and none of me. Uh, It's not, it's not that I, he does 99% and I do one. No, it's him drawing him giving and me being given to Christ, which in turn, uh, predestined that I'm going to come to him to use that kind of language. Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And again, all this lends to the perseverance of the saints as well, because whoever the father draws, right? Whoever the father draws says, no one can come unless the father's draw. So no one's coming unless the father's drawing. And when the father draws those ones, he gives and those ones come and the ones that come, they'll never be cast out. The ones that come will be raised up in the last day. So you got to be careful because our tendency is to run over to John chapter 12, verse 32 and say, well, Jesus says he's going to draw all men uh, to Christ. And we'll talk about that as we get there. Well, it's got to mean, it's got to mean something a little bit different or well, we got to understand it a little bit different because if that's the case, whoever is drawn is going to come. And whoever comes is going to never be cast out, and never be, uh, and and will be raised up. So you can you can find yourself teetering on the cliff of uh, open theism if you don't think about these texts in a systematic biblical way. Uh, and if we go off of tradition and emotion, uh, we can find ourselves falling headlong into, uh, you know, the abyss. Uh, of of Unitarianism, right? Universalism. So we got to be careful there. And, and the point is, I think God has an elect people. You now, I, I like what Spurgeon said, or at least he's accredited with saying this. That, uh, and, and I think I've got into my notes here in just a minute, but uh, he's accredited with saying this idea, or something to this effect, that uh, whenever we get to to heaven, we'll see on this side of the pearly gates. Uh, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. And then when we get through the gate and look back on the other side. It'll say chosen before the foundation of the world. Uh, the Bible s- clearly says whoever calls will come. I mean, will whoever, whoever believes in Christ will be saved. And that is absolutely true. Whoever believes in Christ will be saved. They will find him a perfect savior. Uh, and there's no person who will ever be able to say that I wanted to come, but I couldn't. No, no. If you want to come it's because the father's drawn you and you can absolutely find christ to be a perfect savior in your life then he says the next passage man i don't even know how long we've been going but the next passage is exiles of the dispersion we've talked about that this idea hey that you are sojourners in this hostile world that you live in. You you are like those pilgrims of Israel, right? That are sojourners in those hostile lands. Uh, And so he's calling them to be faithful. But listen to the next phrase. And, And it's all encompassing, I think, in this passage. So to back up to verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's writing to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontius Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and bithynia again, modern Turkey. And he says, according to, well, the according to ties back to this idea of those who are the elect. Well, how are they the elect? Well, they're the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. Now, We've got to stop for a minute and we've got to tackle this issue of foreknowledge. And i got to change to a different set of notes. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, if you go find that on our podcast, you will be able to hear the sermon that I preached on this particular passage of scripture that deals with the idea of foreknowledge. Because Paul uses this exact term uh, in uh, Romans chapter 8, in 28 through 30, is where we find what most theologians call the golden chain of redemption. And so, uh, just to read a, a portion of that that's pertinent to where we are, I'll, I'll read all the way to verse 30. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through, or, or I said verse 18. For I consider our son and praise the present glory of our Verse 28 through 30. Uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, right? Goes back to what Peter says. These are ones who ultimately have come to this place of election because they have been and what John says, because they've been called by God. They are the elect of God. And how does this take place? It takes place as Peter said, according to the foreknowledge of God. So what uh, what do we understand about that? The Greek words progonosco. Um And so he says in verse twenty nine for those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called there we see it again, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. So if we think about this idea of this calling, and Jesus will you know call all men to himself, draw all men to himself. And we can talk about what all those words mean. But these ideas, if God calls everyone, it seems that those who have been called will be justified, predestined, and glorified, and, uh, and all in that process, sanctified. Mm-hmm. It's the only one that's not listed in this text for Paul, but it's an aspect of our salvation. But back to where we need, we need to understand this idea of foreknowledge, prognosco is uh the greek word that is uh that is there and so wh- what does it mean well here's what some people say about prognosco well because it has pro on it this is uh you know from or, or before a preposition before and gnosco means knowledge uh, so it's like the english would get the an english word prognos- uh, uh, prognosis uh, and so uh, this idea of knowing before is the concept. So you got pro before pro pro, and then Gnosko to know, so to know beforehand. So some people look at that and say, Hey, uh, God looked down the corridors of time and he knew beh- knew beforehand, all of those people who would believe in him. Uh, and those are the ones that he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ and the ones that, uh, he had called and all, all those kinds of things. So here's, here's the thing that you got to understand about. Or we got to ask ourselves about this passage. Is it saying in this text, and is what Peter talking about this foreknowledge that uh, that that this according to the foreknowledge of God that these people were elect, these people in the diaspora, is it simply because is simply that God knows knew beforehand their actions or what they would do, and if you look back at what Paul talks about. Paul says, for those whom he foreknew. So what did what, what is Paul saying that God knew? Is he saying that God knew actions or is he saying God knew people? Well, if you read the passage, it says that God knew people. Now, does he know the actions? Yes, he does know the actions. Why? Because he's omniscient, right? God knows these and so you got to think about this idea of foreknowledge in that biblical sense. It's more than just God knowing the actions of people, he knows the actions of all people. There's something significant about this concept of foreknowledge. And again, I was trying to skip through some of my some of my notes to get to the heart of where we need to be. And to me, that that is the tell-all in this passage. I think it's verse 28. We're Paul says that those whom he foreknew it's about the whom and not necessarily about the what right it's about the whom he knew, and he did know what they would do, but it's more about the whom he would knew, and again, Peter. I think is bearing that same thing out. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament concept of knowing. Now, again, we use the same English words to know kind of thing, but there's Hebrew and Greek uh, words that underlie these um, that are translated in English. But the concept of knowing in the Old Testament has a real personal covenantal relation to it, Right. Because Adam knew Eve and what happened? Well, they had a baby, right? So there's this covenantal aspect to this marriage relationship along with the activities that will go along with that relationship. But in the same way, God knew Israel. Uh, God knew, he foreknew Christ. Listen to what 1 Peter one twenty. we ain't got there. We'll get there one day. Uh, 1 Peter one twenty says that he was foreknown, meaning Christ, foreknown before the foundation of the world. So was it that God the Father just knew the actions of the Son? No, he knew the second person of the Trinity before the foundation of the world. And it's that knowledge in that relational aspect uh, again in second peter three seventeen. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away. Right? These people knew beforehand the character and the person of who Paul was and his theology and his doctrine. Romans eight twenty eight or twenty nine. We've already talked about that those whom he foreknew. And then uh I had on here Romans eleven eleven uh two and I think this this really to me drives the nail in the head of the coffin on this idea of what does the Bible, how does the Bible understand God's foreknowing of people? Okay. Uh, our use of foreknow in, in relation to God in, in Romans 11 two, where we were at earlier, God has not rejected his people. This is again, Paul saying to the Israelites, God's not rejected you, right? There are still Israelites who come to faith in Christ Jesus. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, let me ask you, what do you think that meant as in relation to God and Israel, this idea of foreknowing? Was it that God looked down the court over time and he knew those Israelites who would choose him? It doesn't even make sense, right, when you read the Old Testament, because there were no Israelites. Israelites until God called Abraham and says, you go where I tell you to go. And I will give you the, I'm going to give your descendants the land of every place you put your foot. And we really don't get a grasp of who Israel is until Jacob comes and he begins to have his children. And then we grasp the concept of Israel, but there was no Israel for, in the sense that he, that they could choose him. No. He called out this nation of Israel. So it's again about a people that God knows. All right, uh, we're gonna we're gonna leave it at that. We could go, I could go on and on and on uh, with that for another probably whole hour. But again, all I can tell you is what the Bible says about this and the passages that bear witness to this idea that this foreknowing is not as much about god looking down knowing actions which he does but it's about god knowing a people and it's according to that foreknowledge that these people were uh the elect of god and we'll, we'll bear that out to when we hopefully when we go through the continue through this and you can go back to romans and listen to what i said there uh, about that so now we come back to the the, the uh, uh, last portion of verse one i think it is in uh, so let me go back, so because I, I I wouldn't got uh, I, I put a lot of things in between all those phrases. So beginning again in verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are uh, the are the elect, are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now I wanted I wanted to stop out there and point point. Out a couple of things, or, or at least one major thing. We have just witnessed the Trinitarian work of God in salvation among his people. If you look at verse one, who do we see? This is Jesus Christ, right? At the beginning, Peter's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't specifically tie into this idea of God's elect and him calling people to salvation. We know Peter's an apostle of Jesus Christ. But uh, just hang on to that. We get down to this according to the foreknowledge of who? God the Father, all right? And so we have God the Father involved in this aspect of salvation. And then we have in the sanctification of the Spirit. And now if the apostle of Jesus Christ doesn't help you up there, well, we get it again down here at the bottom, for obedience to Christ Jesus. So we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all at work in the redemptive history of humanity. And it goes like this, God, the father has called and chosen to himself a people. God, the son has been sent by the father to come and do what was required to facilitate the appeasement of God's wrath in the atoning of of the sinfulness of humanity to deal with the the guilt of sin and to deal with the wrath of God toward that sin and he did that by being faithful In following every aspect of the law, being tempted in every way you and I were tempted, and yet without sin, and he, the only innocent human being on planet Earth, goes to a cross treated like a criminal, he dies in shame, bearing upon him the guilt of every sin of every human being and experiencing the wrath of God against that sin that every one of us should have experienced. He was buried and he was raised again the third day. And then we have the Holy Spirit working in our lives to bring those people uh, to, to Christ and to sanctify those people into the image of, of Christ. And so we see that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So we have this Trinitarian aspect of redemptive history unfolding before, uh, before our eyes and and again, the Trinity is unfolded in, in the time between uh, the intertestamental period, right? Because from the very last prophet that spoke until the very beginning of the New Testament, when God began to speak uh, in a prophetic way through John the Baptist, and then the Messiah comes, uh, we see the unfolding or the revelation in a very clear way of the Trinity. We don't see the word Trinity in the scripture, but we see the Trinity in the scripture. God, the father, God, the son, and uh, and God, the spirit. And we'll even see, and, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. I think it's in, in, uh, in the second epistle of Peter that there's even a, there, there's a Greek, a Greek rule that's called the Granville sharp rule. And we'll talk more about when I get there, but it explicitly uh, in, in these, in that epistle, I believe um, expresses that God, the father, God, that Jesus is God is really what it's saying. Now we can go to all other much a bunch of other scriptures to find that out, but I'm just saying there's a unique way that Peter brings that about in, in his epistle. But anyway, we see the Trinity at work uh, there. And then, uh, just a bit, just a bit about this idea of sanctification because salvation, you know, as we read through the golden chain, there, there is this, this concept of positional sanctification, uh, in positional sanctification is that whenever we come to faith in Christ in, in the, in, in God's economy of redemption, we are sanctified, right? We, 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 We have been sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will, meaning the will of the father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So there's this idea of positional sanctification. God sees me as sanctified. He sees my salvation as complete. He sees me uh, as conformed to the image of Christ. And then there's this concept of perfectionism. Perfected sanctification. Perfected sanctification is that one day uh, what God sees about me will be a reality in me uh, because all of us know right now, although God perceives me as sanctified, I, you know, like that little song says, he's still working on me, right? There's this concept of progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is where we live. Progressive sanctification is Romans chapter 7. The things I don't want to do seem to be the very things I do, and the things I don't want to do seem to be the very things I can't do. And there's this battle, this war that rages between my spirit and with my flesh, right? And who, the real wretched man that I am, Paul says, who can save me from this body of death? Well, it's God who can save us from this body of death. But Paul reminds us that we are being sanctified we are being saved in that sense in 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 the temporal in the here and now in that progressive way that i'm being more and more conformed to the image of christ by the work of the holy spirit by the using the truth of god's word to sanctify me john chapter 17 uh, and listen to second Corinthians three eighteen. and we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the lord are being transformed see we are being transformed into the image uh, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we're in this progressive concept of sanctification right now. I'm not as bad as I once was, but I'm not where I need to be, and God's still working on me through the person of the Holy Spirit. And then you have the perfected sanctification. One day, what God has done to me on the inner man will be a reality for the outer man. Right? I'll have a brand new body, a holy, sanctified, glorified body when Christ comes again. We won't read it, but First Corinthians six one would be a good follow up passage that is there. And you need you need to you need to underline that passage and remember because it lends to this idea of us being faithful and obedient to Christ because we once were some of those, but we uh, were sanctified. All right, now, uh, moving on. Uh, and why does he do this? He does this, and really the, the, the idea is the, the language underlying this is probably more woodenly that we are, uh, where it says, according to the foreknowledge of God, uh, of, of the father in the sanctifi- sanctification of the spirit the last two phrases say for obedience to Jesus Christ uh for and for sprinkling with his blood but it's probably more wooden, woodenly uh into obedience or submission and uh sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ so it's a kind of this one concept that we are being we we are this is happening by the by according to the foreknowledge of god for in the sanctification of the holy spirit for the purpose of us coming under subjection of jesus christ and being sprinkled with his blood in the sense not physically literally but in the sense of sanctification in in the concept of being set apart right we we have been set apart by the blood of jesus christ we've been sprinkled by the blood it's because of the 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 shedding of his blood that we find ourselves um we find ourselves standing before god in his righteousness we find ourselves uh in this place where the law of god can be fulfilled in us for the very first time because he's changed us and given us a brand new nature so inherent in this is the concept of obedience. Again, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Love it. All of us know it, Christians. uh, You can quote it with me. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We cannot be saved by the things that we do. But verse 10 implies that whenever we are saved, that God has predetermined works that we ought to walk in right and he's done that before the foundation of the world so there is this concept that when we come to faith in Christ obedience should follow that's why James says what he says faith without works is dead faith right works don't save you but when you get saved obedience ought to be a natural aspect of our salvation and the transformation that God has brought into our our life listen to Romans 8 and verse or right, let me start here John 14 15. If you love me, keep my commandments is what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commandments. What's that? What's the implication? Well, if you say you're a follower of Christ, if you say you love me, then you will do what I have told you to do. Obedience will follow. Romans 8, 4. Paul dealing with the idea of those who walk in the flesh versus those who walk in the spirit. Those who walk in the flesh, he says, they're in enmity with God. They're enemies of God. So you can't be a person who claims to be follower of Christ and walk in the flesh. In this world and sinfulness and after the flesh lust and desires and say that you uh, love God, you're an enemy of God it's what Paul said. And he says, those who walk in the spirit are according to the spirit. Listen, the spirit changes them. And listen to what he says in eight, eight, four, in order that the righteous requirements of the law, what law is he talking about? He's talking about the moral code of God. He's talking about the Decalogue. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He goes and lists some of those commandments a little bit later on and how they are fulfilled in our life when we when we follow after Christ. So he's saying that we will we will fulfill the righteous requirements of the law because the Holy Spirit indwells us in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, I had first, I had Colossians one, one, nine through 10. And so from the day, day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And here's the reason why, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, uh, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what ought to identify those who are followers of Christ. There is no biblical concept that a person can follow after Christ and continue to live from that day forward a life of sinfulness. Now, does that mean believers don't sin? No. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, right? The things I want to do seem to be the very things I don't do. The things I don't want to be, do seem to be the things that I always end up doing. There's a battle that goes on between the flesh and, and the spirit, right? Well, how do we deal with that? Well, we get on our face before God. We study God's Word. How does the Holy Spirit sanctify us? Well, Jesus tells us. He says. He, he's, he says in his in his prayer for his disciples, not just those twelve, but all of us. He says. Uh, father sanctify them with truth and he says your word is truth." so what's the ammunition that the holy spirit uh if we're coming into the sanctification of the holy spirit then how does the holy spirit do that the holy spirit does that with the truth of god's word so if we want to be people who we we need uh who are sanctified we need to we need to be working to give the holy spirit ammunition to use to sanctify us and that's to be students of the truth of god's word and when that happens in us we are redeemed we are regenerate god changes our mind we will begin to do what paul required or called us to do Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and offering your, offering your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, uh, right? Ultimately, that's your reasonable act of service, your reasonable act of worship to him. So this salvation we have ought to lead to obedience and faith, even in the midst of trial, uh, knowing that God is our savior from beginning to end. And he ends verse two with, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Again, that's a greeting. Some people say that that's uh, uh, bringing in both the Gentile and the Jewish aspect with the grace from the Gentile side, side uh, or perspective and, and peace, shalom from the Israel, Israeli perspective or Israelite perspective. But it is, a, a, it is a, uh, a greeting that we see often in the epistles, not just in Peter. And how do we get grace? Well, we get grace from God, right? It's God's, God's grace to us that we don't uh, get what we deserve. He graciously gives us mercy, that we, which is, means we, we get what we don't deserve. And that's, that's, that's his grace and his justification in Christ Jesus. And how do we get peace? We get peace in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, my peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. It's a peace that passes all understanding. He is the Prince of Peace. If you have unrest, unpeace in your life, well, go to Christ. He's the source of all true peace. Get in His word. Get on your knees. So, all right, we'll stop there. Uh, I don't even know how long I've gone, but um, let me close this up. That's uh, that's my spiel on that tonight. And so, just we ought to be encouraged by that because Peter's telling this group of people, "Hey, I know I know where you are. I know what's going on. God knows where you are." God knows what's going on. You are his people. You are those who have been called by him. You are those who have been chosen by him. You are his elect. You are, as he'll tell us later on, that nation uh, of a uh, kingdom of priests, right? That holy nation. Uh, you are God's chosen according to his foreknowledge. Um, and so uh, that ought to give you encouragement because those who are followers of Christ, we are in a covenantal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and we are. We have been grafted into that one old olive tree that makes up the one people of God. And so if you got any questions or comments on any of that, send me a note, uh, send me an email, send me a text, send me a message, and we'll endeavor to answer those. And we'll pick up in verse three the next time. Well, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you.